Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. If you're wondering what that means, it means exactly what it says. This is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. Verse 6, however, if you tell the dream in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the Elohim, the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. In this chapter, Daniel is going to give us an outline and a revelation of world history. The times of the Gentiles is going to begin with the king of Babylon. And earth's civilizational history is going to unfold right before our eyes. The king of Babylon is given a disturbing dream in verse 1. The king is then going to make specific commands which seem like an outrageous demand. Reveal the dream interpret the dream in verses 2 through 4. And because the wise men are unable to comply with the demand, the king is going to issue a decree that all of the wise men, or at least these particular wise men, are going to be put to death in verses 5 through 13. It would be like if the President of the United States got mad at the entire foreign policy of the State Department and said, okay, all of you are going to be fired. Every one of you. Our new policy is 
we have no State Department and we have no policy. Only in this instance, they're all going to be killed. This is going to place Daniel and his friends in peril in verses 1 through 13. The chapter is going to continue with Daniel's prayer and then praise to God in verses 14 through 23. And then as the Lord reveals to Daniel what is an otherwise impossible situation, God is going to give to Daniel a revelation. He is going to intervene and give its interpretation in verses 24 through 45. And so the dream is going to include this massive statue that has a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, a bronze belly and thighs, and the statue's legs and feet are going to be a combination of iron and clay. A massive supernatural stone is going to come from heaven. It's going to hit the statue and it's going to crush it into powder and dust until the statue collapses. And we're going to learn that the statue represents the unfolding of Gentile history in relationship to the Jewish people. The statue is going to represent four successive powers, Babylon, the Medes and Persians, Greece and Rome. And it's also going to fast forward into a future where God is king and the Messiah comes. And the foolish attempt to govern ourselves apart from God is going to come to a dramatic conclusion. I had the privilege at the uh, Western Conservative Summit to introduce, <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> I know, it's Kirk Cameron. I know he's famous, and I know that famous people like it when you remember their name. I told the politicians, the people running for government, I told them that government exists for two reasons, to promote righteousness and to prevent wickedness. I said, you know what you're supposed to do? Now go do it. Can you imagine if government did exactly what God ordained it to do? to promote righteousness and prevent wickedness. God invented government in order for human beings to not live in chaos. And so we understand something. This stone is going to represent God's power, God's Messiah, God's ability to one day bring to a dramatic close Satan's grip on humanity. And so, this chapter and chapter 7 and chapter 9 are all going to be important as later you'll, at some t hopefully sometime in your life, study the book of Revelation and, and biblical prophecy as a whole. So we're going to take our time with the chapter as we look at Daniel's peril in these first 13 verses. Daniel's prayer and praise in verses 14 through 23. And then Daniel's prophecy at the end of the chapter in verses 24 through 45. So we begin with sleepless in Babylon. Look what it says in verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Note, it's plural. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. 
Now, again, some people have suggested a contradiction. They're saying, okay, in the first chapter, it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is king. How is it possible that Daniel and his friends received three years of training in chapter one, but yet we're still only in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Well, the right answer is when Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem to conquer the city of Jerusalem in the first time and the second time and then again the third time, he wasn't yet the king. He was acting on behalf of his father, Nabopolazar. Uh, so then why does the text call him king in chapter 1? The Holy Spirit, Daniel writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just simply applies to him the name that he will embrace. He will be the king. He was made the king September 7th, 605 BC, upon the death of his father, like I said, Nabopolazar. And so this year of this part of the chapter is taking place in 603 BC. Now he has dreams, plural, and the dreams are causing distress. So it would appear that this singular dream is happening over and over and over again. And apparently he's thinking about the future. The reason why we think that, because later in the chapter, in verse 29, as, as Daniel is going to speak to him, he says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. In other words, he was thinking about the future. He was thinking about the kingdom that was left to him by his father. In 605 BC, he had conquered the surrounding kingdoms all around him. And this Nebuchadnezzar isn't stupid. He knows that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and the dream is going to generate fits and fear and frustration. He can't sleep because he's worried about the future. Have you ever had a reoccurring dream? You, you know, I've, I've discovered that reoccurring dreams are something fairly common to human beings. And I remember a reoccurring dream that I had when I was first five years old and then six years old and then seven years old and then eight years old. The dream morphed a little bit, but at the age of five, I had this reoccurring dream that I was in a living room, and there was a coffee table, and on the coffee table, there was a Bible. I knew it, even at five, because I could make out the letters, H-O-L-Y-B-I-B-L-E, but I don't hardly know anything about anything. I just know that it's a Bible, and I know it's on that coffee table, and there's a long hallway, and there are doors to the left, and there are doors to the right, and I know that there is something horrible and terrible that's about to happen to me. And I walk down the hall, and I check the doors, and they're all locked. And I keep walking and walking and walking till I come to the end of the hallway. And I open the door. It's pitch black, and there's a gigantic monster inside. And I'm terrified. And I run back down the hall, and the monster pursues me. And I pick up the Bible, and I throw it at the monster, and the monster disappears. And that happened first year, second year, 
by the third year, I think my tiny mind began to understand that the Bible isn't just a magical remedy in order to, to make evil disappear because I threw the Bible at the monster and the monster kept coming because, you know, it's going to take something more than just confidence in a Bible. It's going to take something else. He has this reoccurring dream. He wants to know about the future. He wants to know about his life. When I was preparing this, I, I came across another reoccurring dream. Um, Abraham Lincoln talked about it during the course of the Civil War. He had it when he was running for office. He had it when he was elected. He had it at the worst times during the Civil War. And then on the morning of April 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln gathered the advisors. He gathered his cabinet to discuss plans on how they're going to reconstruct the southern states and how they're going to get past the devastation of the Civil War. And this is when he mentions this reoccurring dream. In the dream, he saw himself on board a singular, indescribable vessel that was rapidly moving in an indefinite place to an indefinite shore. And the people at the meeting talked about his dream, but no, nobody knew what it meant. And that night, Lincoln went to Ford's Theater and he was shot by John Wilkes Booth shortly after 10 o'clock. He was shot on Friday, April 14th. Do you know what day that was in 1865? It was Good Friday. He died the next day, Saturday. John Phillips writes, quote, The vessel was his own life. The dream he had was a warning of what was about to take place. He was about to embark and go to the shores of eternity. Little did he imagine that the dream had a personal meaning for him, but it was also important for the nation. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, it isn't just simply about his life and his future. It's going to incorporate human history as it unfolds until final resolution is going to take place at the end of the age. And so this king, you can imagine, is completely undone. And in verse 2, he makes a demand. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream. And my spirit is anxious to know the dream. This is the king's cabinet. This is his immediate advisors. And the Hebrew word translated magician has as its root meaning stylus or pen. We might think of this in a very odd way as a recorder. This is a master penman, if you will. This is a person who's skilled in language arts, who can understand and incorporate and write things down. It could also mean a scholar. Depending on the context, it could mean those who practice dark arts, but not necessarily. Astrologers translates a word enchanter, and it's a reference to necromancy. You may not know what that word means, but it's the art and science, if you will, in the ancient world of speaking to the dead. 
And so the translation astrologer suggests the study of the stars in order to predict the future. Sorcery suggests those who practice divination or incantation. This is the ancient art of producing reality by your speech. The sorcerer received power through evil spirits. And the most significant term among magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans is that word Chaldean. It's a special group of priests or astrologers who constituted the elite ruling class of that civilization. The Chaldeans were tasked with the preservation of the beliefs and the language and the religion and the culture of Chaldea. These are the movers and the shakers. These are the guys who are supposed to have the answers to life's deepest questions. These are supposed to be the people who know the mysteries of the supernatural and also the natural. These are the men who are supposed to answer the question, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? These are the experts and their job is to identify and interpret and process the information around them. It is also their job to identify and appease the gods, to identify spirit beings, to determine who's harmful and who's helpful. The Chaldeans, again, are the experts in the area of what is known and unknown. And they made claims to supernatural information. But was it true? Was it true? What do you have in common with this king? The same thing that you have in common with this king is the question that he's asking. What is real? What is true? What does the future hold? What does my future hold? Where can I go to get accurate information about what's happening all around me? And remember, this king is autonomous. Do you know that word? It comes from two Greek words. Autos means self. Nomos means law. In other words, this king is the law. When he says you live, you get to live. If he wants to make you rich, you are rich. If he wants you to die, you will die. But his earthly kingdom is rooted and connected to his personal power. This is the difference between autonomy and freedom. You see, real freedom has to be tethered to a real God, to the God of the Bible, to the God who's created the heavens and the earth. And this great big divide is going to be the great big divide that all of humanity is going to have to struggle with. Remember, this is part of the point of this book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, in part of its point, is Will human civilization, will human governments detached from, divided from, divorced from the God of the Bible 
find security and happiness and peace. Not really. C.S. Lewis seemed to say it all when he wrote, quote, The next moment is as much beyond our grasp and as much in God's care as that a hundred years away. Care for the next minute is just as foolish as care for a day. So in the next thousand years, in neither can we know anything. In both, God can know everything. Who is the person who knows the truth about what's going to happen in the next minute in your life, in the next hour in your life, in the next year of your life? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. And so we have, again, this reoccurring situation in the book of Daniel, and that is who really is in control of the unfolding of human history. And so the scholars are left with a predicament in verses 4 through 13. Look what it says. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Now, now the book of Daniel at this point, in verse 3, it leaves the Hebrew text. And it begins to be written in the Aramaic text. It will continue in the Aramaic text until chapter 7, verse 28. The first words of the Aramaic reads, O king, live forever. Now, scholars debate the significance of the language change. Some people have suggested it could be something as simple as the events that are described from here to chapter 2 have as their primary audience the Gentile kingdoms and what will happen to the Gentiles. Does this mean it has no significance for the Jews or the Jewish people? I, I don't think that the answer is yes because Aramaic is the language of captivity. Aramaic for them is the language of exile. Now, in order to understand this a little bit better, this is the common language that's spoken in the court of Babylon, but it's distantly related to Hebrew. By that, they're from the same language family. For those of you who are, who are familiar with Romance language or the, the languages of Rome, you are familiar with Italian or French or Spanish. They all come from a Latin group. And so there are similarities, just like in this Latin root language, there are similarities in French and Spanish and, and Italian. There, there's similarities, but they're not exactly the same. And the same is true in this Aramaic language. It's the language of captivity. It's written in a similar text as the Hebrew alphabet with distinct differences. So again, it's the common language and the popular language of Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia. It's the common language in that region. But in a world sense, it's going to serve very much the same function as the English language does today. The English language is a window into the world. If you can speak English, you can conduct business in Central and South America. You can conduct business in, in Asia and Europe. 
In other words, it's the language of government and trade, and so it is with this. And so in my understanding, it becomes a type and a picture of how things are going to unfold and to communicate in the most effective way possible God's plan for the future. And so remember, the Chaldeans are the priests and the wise men. Pharaoh kept similar confidants in his court in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. So the law of Moses forbade accessing supernatural information except from God. And so here is the situation. The king wants supernatural information. For the Jewish people, supernatural information can only come from God. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, it says, You shall not suffer or allow a witch to live. And some of you have read that, and especially if you grew up in a world that was distant from Christianity, you think, you mean the Bible says witches aren't allowed to live? And, and sometimes we forget the reason why the Bible prohibited witchcraft and necromancy, speaking to the dead. It was because there was this incredible urge on the part of the children of Israel to know about the future, but not according to God's plan and God's purpose and God's revelation. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, it says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And so Daniel... And his friends know that people make claims about the supernatural. But that doesn't mean those claims are true. Some people might actually succeed in predicting an event. But that doesn't guarantee that the sign or the wonder was necessarily from God. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 it says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you saying, Let's go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all all your soul. So the ancient commands for the Jewish people were beware of where you get information about the future. Do you know what it's like? Imagine you're going online. Is it possible for anyone on the internet to pretend to be anyone they want to be? The Bible is saying if you take the journey into the realm away from the natural to the supernatural, you might be dealing in forces that pretend to be something that they're not. But in verse 5, look what it says. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you don't make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you're going to be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in hash heap. Now, Pause for just a minute. When it says, my decision is firm, it's an idiomatic expression which means, I've made up my mind. I've made up my mind. Does it mean he's forgotten the dream and they're tasked with remembering the dream? No. I suspect that he really knows the dream. 
he's going to test the integrity and the ability of these so-called experts. I remember reading a story about the guy who uh, owned the psychic hotline dying. And you go, well, how, how could you not know? You're a psychic. You're supposed to know the future. You're supposed to be able, or imagine you, you call the psychic hotline. Hello? Yeah, who is this? You're the psychic. You tell me. No, no, we laugh because, again, extraordinary claims is going to require extraordinary evidence. You've grown up in a world where extraordinary claims are made about death and dying and the next world and what really happens when you die. Conservative scholars, again, maintain the king remembers this dream, dream, but he's using this as a proving ground, a testing ground, to see if their supernatural powers are in fact true. The word interpretation in verse 5 is reoccurring and important. That word interpretation is going to appear again in verse 6. It's going to appear again in chapter 4, verse 7, in verse 18, in chapter 5, verse 7, in verse 15, in, in verse 17, and then again in chapter 7, verse 16. Interpretation is one of those words that you should underline and pay close attention to because, again, in the Aramaic language, it meant literally to unloose or untie. So it was a word that, that was meant to unloose or untie that which was tied. In other words, somewhere between mystery and certainty is reality. So the, Daniel is going to receive from God the supernatural ability to untie or unloose visions and dreams. And throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is going to remind kings and he's going to remind the readers that it's the supernatural God of the Bible that's given him this ability. He isn't making supernatural claims for himself. He isn't saying, hey, you know, I'm the seventh son of the seventh daughter of the seventh whatever. He's not making supernatural claims for himself. He's saying, my ability to do what I am doing comes from God. In verse 6, it says, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and the interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. Think about what you're reading. The king promises judgment if the wise men fail in their task. Make the dream known to me and then tell me what it means. Judgment if you don't do it. Reward if you get it right. The judgment is going to be swift and severe. The reward is going to be extravagant. And life-changing. But anyone can fabricate an interpretation, can't they? And so the king answered and said, I know for certain 
that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. So the king believes that the wise men are stalling. They're stalling for time. Perhaps the king will see just how unreasonable the request is. In other words, part of the reason why they're doing it, they're going, okay, the king has answered us or has asked us to do something that's not reasonable. It, it, it can't be done. Uh, again, think about the judgment if the wise men fail in their mission. And so in verse 9, it says, if you don't make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. Then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Think of their position. Imagine you go to a scientist and you say, why is there something rather than nothing? See, you're laughing. You're laughing because the scientists can say, I concede that there's something, but I don't. if you're asking me why, I don't know the answer. Why is there inorganic material and organic material? I don't know. Well, I'll ask you a different question. Can rocks reproduce? No. What do rocks think about? Somebody said nothing. That's what Aristotle said. He said that nothing is what rocks think about. So imagine you're asking the question, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? You're making claims that you have answers to the most important questions in life. And in verse 11, it says, it's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In verse 11, the wise men concede the difficulty. No, impossibility of the king's request. No one has access to Elohim, the gods. These sources of information don't make themselves accessible to human beings. Not yet. When Daniel's writing these words, it's about 603 BC. Fast forward into the 5th century, the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century, the 1st century, about 4 BC. A person is going to be born, according to the prophecy, in Bethlehem of Judea. In John 1.1 1, 1 it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has a plan and a purpose. The answers to life's most difficult and troubling questions are going to have answers. And those answers are going to be in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, you're going to discover the reason why you're here and what you're doing here. You're going to discover the answer to the most unreasonable issue that you face in your life. 
It's the problem of sin. It's the things that that separated you from God. In Galatians 4.4, it says that Christ came at exactly the right moment in exactly the way that the Bible predicted. He would be born of a woman. He would be born under the law. Look carefully at the concessions of the king's fraudulent advisors. Number one, no person on earth can reveal the person's dreams. Number two, no king in in history ever made such an unreasonable and unattainable request. And number three, only the gods themselves can reveal the dream. And these gods don't dwell with men. In other words, the people who know the answer to the king's question, they're not here. And they're not from around here. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. The leaders accuse the king of being unreasonable. If we know anything about Nebuchadnezzar at all, what do we know? Do you think he likes to be called unreasonable? No. I I want you to actually think about what this king is doing. These people claim that they have access to supernatural powers and supernatural sources. And so the king says, you have access to supernatural powers and supernatural sources? Then tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to know. And do you know what they're doing? They're admitting that they're charlatans. They're admitting that they're frauds. They're admitting that they're false prophets. And if you live in this world long enough, the people who say that they have the answers to the most important questions that you possess and that it's found apart from God, it's found apart from the Bible, it's found apart from Christ, you know what the answers to your questions are? Why you came from mud. Well, actually molecules to mud to man. You came from nowhere. You are the process, the end result of random chance issues that have taken place over a long period of time. Is there meaning in my life? Is there significance to my life? Does my life matter? Does it have meaning and purpose? This last week, Kate Spade, the the sister-in-law to David Spade, killed herself. Anthony Bourdain, some of you may have seen him on CNN, 61 years old. He goes all around the world pursuing happiness and dreams. He finds himself dead. Suicide has increased 25 to 30% in just the last 10 years. You're living in a world where the person right next to you at this very moment may have contemplated taking his or her own life. Why am I here? Why am I here? Is life just simply a series of mistake and pain? Where can I go to get the information that I need? Philosophers for centuries have made truth claims and then they've devised tests to substantiate those claims. What makes anything true? The Bible says if a person dies, will they live again? You know what I tell people when they ask me that question? The answer is yes. How do you know? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you rise from the dead, to me, that's instant credibility. Now, you guys laugh. But but think about it. Who would...
would know more about life and death than the person who actually comes back to life. What are the limits of human understanding? What are we capable of knowing? What lies between mystery and certainty? The ways prepared for Daniel. We have a real dilemma here. Because only the true and the living God can give the king what he wants. I want you to understand something. In order for the end of chapter 2 to take place in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 7, Daniel and his friends are going to have to be spared. And the only way that they're going to be spared is if God's real. And the only way that you're going to be spared, the only way that you are going to not only survive this life, but survive into the next life, we have to ask and answer this most important question. Is God real? Is what he said about himself true? The king wants an answer. Look at verse 12. For this reason, the king is angry and very furious and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon the experts in the supernatural say we can't help and this king says if you can't help what good are you if you can't help what good are you their response is no one can help the king is looking for answers that no one can help him with and so many people fall into this same circumstance in their life they think i'm looking for answers i'm looking for help i need you to help me find the answers to the questions that are most important to me what are those questions why am I here? Is there meaning to life? Where am I going? If the college of soothsayers and magicians and prophets and prognosticators can't give him what he wants, what good are they? What good is science? What good is religion? What good is this person or that person as they make claims or they provoke Despair. It makes perfect sense to me that people who are constantly bombarded with the message, you don't matter, you're not significant, you're not really made in the image of God, your choices are predetermined, you don't, choice is an illusion, heaven isn't real, this world is all there is, the only thing that you have to look forward to is dying. And then passing out of existence. And you go, and, and tell me about hope? Well, there's Disneyland. You can always pretend that there's meaning and significance apart from God. But it's not true. The king's judgment is at least in one sense accurate. I want you to think about this king for just a moment. His patience is 
exhausted. The religious community of Babylon is impotent. They are helpless to tell the king about the truth about his future. And so this is the point of the Bible. The Bible has the ability to tell you the truth about why you're here and what you're doing here and where you're going and how it's going to end. In verse 13, it says, so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Pause for a moment. Think about what's going on in the text. Has God given the king a dream about the future? Yes. Why is the king so determined to kill the religious advisors, to kill the counselors? I'm going to suggest to you in part that Satan has something to do with this scheme. That there's a real Satan who's motivating and directing the king. Pause for a minute. Does Satan want Daniel and his friends dead? Yeah, the answer is yes. And the truth is, he wants you dead as well. The Bible says, like a roaring lion, he goes around seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants Daniel and his friends dead. We know that he's a murderer. It says so in John 8, 44. Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning, and there's no truth in him whatsoever. But remember what I said about Daniel and our friends? They're out of the land. Their independence is gone. They're ruled by a pagan king. Jeremiah the prophet says, you're in captivity. It's going to be for a season. You're going to be released because I have a plan and a purpose. There's a future that I've ordained for you. There's a Messiah who's going to come. There's going to be a redemptive event that's going to result in forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. And Daniel, you and your friends are going to play a role. The king paints Daniel and his friends with the same broad brush as all the religious phonies in his kingdom. And I want you to understand something, that the people in our culture and society, as they look at the frauds and the phonies, they sometimes want to paint you in with them because everyone else has let them down, because everyone else has lied to them, because everyone else has given them a false hope. What are you going to do that's different? And so they'll say to you, you can't help me come to church. I don't want to go to your church. Open up your Bible and read it. I don't want to read the Bible. I thought you said you wanted answers. What are you going to give me as evidence that the answers that you're about to bring are true? If Daniel and his friends are going to survive into the future the Lord himself is going to have to intervene. The king signs a warrant. It's a death warrant for Daniel and his friends. God's going to have to show up. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know 
It sounds cliche to say we know who holds tomorrow. Daniel knows that God's plan for the future is as bright as the promises of God. And this is why it's okay for you to say, I don't know everything about everything. I don't know everything about the future, but I know what must take place. There is a God. He is in heaven. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He said he would return. Everything that the Bible said concerning his first coming and his life and his death and his resurrection came to pass. So I have to believe that his return is just as true. And then Daniel and his friends are going to embark on a prayer journey and a praise journey. They're going to ask God, Lord, do we play some sort of role in the unfolding of the future that you've ordained? If the answer is yes, then someone's going to have to not only know the dream, but be able to interpret the dream. You see, Babylon claims to be the source of mystery and sorcery and supernatural. Remember what Babylon is. It becomes a type and a picture of the world in which you live in and the world in which you live in claims that it's going to have the answers to your deepest questions and your most sincere needs. And what do human beings need more than anything else? They need to have a right relationship with God. And the only way that they can have a right relationship with God is if the sin issue is going to be resolved. If the sin issue is not resolved, then there, there is no future with God. Are dreams the gateway to the supernatural? Are we able to access the future? Where can we go to get information about the future? If you're part of a small group, I want you hopefully this week, to ask the questions, are dreams a gateway to the supernatural? Can we access the future? Where do we go to get information about the future? And remember, the Bible repeatedly warns about seeking information from unreliable sources. Leviticus 19.31 says, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Don't seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, Leviticus 26, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person. I will cut him off from the people over and over again. Isaiah 8, 19, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should we not be a people who seeks after their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah says, to the law and the testimony. When he says that, he says, instead of going to unreliable sources, go to reliable sources. Do you want to know about your life and do you want to know about the future? Open up God's word. See what it says about you. The law and the testimony 
are God's word. They're the only absolute and trustworthy standards that the believer can embrace. Micah 5.12 says, I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, if you want to know the truth, if you want to know the truth about what God has for you and wants for you, then go to the only reliable supernatural source of information that can tell you what you really need to know. What do you really need to know? Is there hope for me? Can my sins be forgiven? Is it possible that someone like me could know God, experience the Lord, and have a certain certainty about what the future holds for me. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, as we begin this journey with Daniel, I, I know that many people can see themselves not only in the king's predicament, how can I know anything for certain? And they can see themselves in Daniel's predicament. Lord, unless you're real, unless you're true, unless what the Bible says about you is true, there's no hope for me. And yet, Lord, we believe that the Bible is true. That when it describes our condition as sinners, that we are. When it describes the solution to the problem, a savior, that he's real. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who has struggled their whole life. And they're wondering, is there a way out of my depression? Is there a way out of my despair? Is there a way out of my constant frustration, wondering if life is meaningful or meaningless? Lord, we know that Jesus said that he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. Lord, I wonder if there's abundant life available for that person who's willing to cry out to you and ask for it. Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Lord, I don't know everything about everything, but I have lots and lots of questions. And I want to know if the Bible's true, and I want to know if Jesus is real, and I want to know if heaven is a certainty. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they would open up their Bible, and then they would open up their heart, and that they would ask you, Lord, to reveal to them the truth about the identity of Jesus and his ability to save people and the certainty of the future. So, Lord, thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you for revealing yourself in your word. Thank you for reminding us that the future is certain. In Jesus' name, amen.